Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Thursday, January 5th. I'm your reader, Kelly Neff. Let's begin, as usual, with a look at the weather. For today, early flurries, cloudy, with a westerly wind at 15 to 25 miles per hour. The high today, 32, the low tonight, 16. Then tomorrow, partly sunny, with a northwesterly wind at 5 to 10 miles per hour, a high of 32, and a low of 21. On Saturday, there is a chance of rain and snow, with a northeasterly wind at 5 to 15 miles per hour, a high of 35, and a low of 23. Then on Sunday, partly sunny, with a northwesterly wind at 5 to 15 miles per hour, Sunday's high will be 35, with a low 23. Moving to our first story of the day from the front page. It's written by Vanessa Miller of the Gazette. It says, UI calls North Liberty Expansion an orthopedic hospital. Dateline, North Liberty. After critics of the University of Iowa Healthcare's initial application to build the hospital in North Liberty slammed its focus on orthopedics, UI officials stripped that word from a Duver application. Now that the hospital has state approval and is advancing to the exterior phase of construction, UIHC officials again are airing plans to move orthopedics to the site, even calling the project, quote, an orthopedic hospital. Orthopedics deals with bones or muscles and is among the most lucrative for hospitals given the high number of surgeries. Behind salaries for UI's head football and basketball coaches, the top-earning UI employee in 2022 was an orthopedic surgeon, with two of them making between $1.4 and $1.7 million, more than UI Vice President for Medical Affairs and Carver College of Medicine Dean Brooks Jackson. According to the first UIHC application, which reported plans for 36 inpatient beds with up to 32 tied to orthopedics, they said orthopedic surgery would account for a significant portion of the initial service mix. But after competing hospitals spoke against the UIHC project for taking away business from community providers, including those focused on orthopedics, UIHC distanced itself from orthopedics and highlighted the growing need for complex care, which nearby hospitals can't provide. Now, officials are back to where they started. According to a 2022 year-end review re-email from Larry Marsh, the chair and executive officer of the UI Department of Orthopedics and Rehabilitation for nearly a decade, said, In 2025, we will move the department to a new musculoskeletal hospital in North Liberty. Orthopedic Hospital Under Construction in a section was labeled that. In March, described the emerging hospital on 60 acres of land between Highway 965 and Interstate 380 as having, quote, a floor devoted to education, an administrative floor for our offices, skills lab, gate lab, research-focused weight-bearing CT, and our biomechanics lab. A gate lab can assess how someone walks or runs. A biomechanics lab involves the study of structure, 
function, and motion, and CT scans can be used in orthopedic research and care involving joints and other alignment issues. According to Marsh's departmental message, it will be a remarkable near-one-of-a-kind facility and will be a 50-plus year future for the department. The orthopedic world at the University of Iowa will be changing. The genesis of UIHC's North Liberty Hospital, now budgeted to cost $525.6 million, involved a 2016 proposal to spend $100 million expanding its Iowa River Landing property in Coralville, so UIHC's orthopedic services could relocate there from the main hospital in Iowa City. According to UIHC's Board of Regents project proposal in 2016, since the relocation of the Department of Orthopedics and Rehabilitation to the lower level of the John Papa John Pavilion 20 years ago, the department's volume has increased by over 57%. This remarkable growth in outpatient activity has far surpassed the projected capacity of the department's current clinical and imaging space. At the time, UIHC noted a significant strain on clinical operations within the physical space, creating a weeks-long scheduling backlog to get into clinical rooms that are undersized in comparison to contemporary standards and do not meet the needs of many orthopedic patients. The regents gave UIHC permission to proceed with that project in Coralville, but four years later, in early 2020, UIHC returned, seeking permission to revise plans and instead build a new medical facility in North Liberty. According to that 2020 request, quote, based upon thoughtful consideration of a host of variables, including the heightened patient demand experienced across all UIHC services, it was determined that undertaking this construction at a more expansive location would offer the opportunity to increase the scope of services and better meet the needs of Iowans in a timely manner. The request went on to say, while orthopedics is still a component of this medical facility, the first phase would also include a level 4 emergency treatment center, urgent care services, outpatient clinics, diagnostic services, surgical suites, acute inpatient beds, and associated support services, all aimed at improving patient access and decompressing the congested main UIHC complex. When UIHC first brought the proposal to the State Health Facilities Council in February of 2021, UIHC Orthopedics Chair Marsh led presentations on why the region needs a new hospital in North Liberty. Marsh said the department had 100-plus providers, including including about 50 faculty members and 30 residents operating in outdated, cramped, cluttered, small facilities. He said, being able to be in a better environment with better space and modern space for our education, of course, would be just fantastic. But opponents referenced UIHC's orthopedic intentions in disputing the company's need for the new medical campus, reporting ample resources at other local care providers, including Mercy Iowa City and the Iowa City Ambulatory Surgical Center, which work with Steindler Orthopedic Clinic based in Iowa City. Mercy Iowa City ICU Medical Director and Pulmonary Critical Care Dr. Andrew Ashby said during the first state hearing, arguing that approval could drive his hospital out of business, quote, it's a big ortho hospital. That is not what this community needs. 
Noting UIHC offers unique services to the sickest patients, Unity Point Health Cedar Rapids President Michelle Nierman criticized its use of a new facility for orthopedics. Nieman said, rather than proposing a project that clearly and first focuses on expanding their capacity for those patient care services they uniquely offer, they are instead proposing to offer primarily orthopedic, urology, and GI procedures, procedures that are outpatient in nature and that are core offerings of the community hospitals. These procedures are high volume. They're driven by demographics, and they yield some of the strongest margins in health care. The, the State Health Facilities Council cited those arguments in denying the first application. The council wrote, quote, The council notes that the local hospitals and outpatient service providers report being at 50% capacity and that they could handle many of the procedures, especially orthopedic and other outpatient procedures being proposed by the UIHC at the North Liberty campus, end quote. In returning to the board months later with a revised application focused on UIHC's care of Iowa's sickest and most complex patients, orthopedics weren't mentioned this time. When the state responded with a list of questions requesting a list of specific services the North Liberty location will provide, UIHC gave examples of potential services, listing orthopedics fifth of six mentioned. After the state approved UIHC's revised application, the Gazette asked UIHC whether orthopedics would remain central to its North Liberty plans, and officials said, maybe. Our plans for this facility remain flexible as we continue to evaluate and determine which clinical specialties will be offered on the new campus based on patient demand. That's according to a UIHC statement provided in October of 2021, which went on to say, based on this patient demand, orthopedic subspecialties may be included in the new location. In response to the Gazette's follow-up questions in December, UIHC officials said they weren't yet able to say how much of the space at the hospital would be allocated to various services. But they said, quote, However, we do know one of the initial services upon opening in 2025 will be orthopedics and sports medicine, largely due to an increasing demand for these services and the need for a more convenient and accessible drive-up location for patients with mobility challenges, end quote. Months after the state approved UIHC's North Liberty project, it also approved construction of a $19.2 million Steindler North Liberty Ambulatory Surgery Center on 36 acres off I-380, about one and a half miles east of the new UIHC hospital campus, making that a soon-to-be hub for orthopedic care. From the Iowa Today page, we have a story written by Robin Opsall, called Student Gun Safety Advocates Push Policy Goals for 2023. Robin says, Students with March for Our Lives Iowa said this week they plan to focus during the 2023 legislative session on firearm regulations that can hold up to the newly implemented constitutional amendment. Group leaders held a news conference Tuesday at the state capitol in Des Moines. Each year, the Gun Violence Prevention Group brings up common-sense gun policies they plan to advocate for at the Capitol. But co-legislative director Waverly Zao said Iowa's midterm election results will make implementing such measures more difficult. 
Iowa voters chose to adopt the Right to Keep and Bear Arms Amendment in the November 2022 election, with 65% of votes supporting the constitutional change. The new language means that any legislation restricting gun rights must hold up to a strict scrutiny, meaning the measure must serve a compelling state interest. Zaho said strict scrutiny will endanger any hopes of introducing common-sense gun policy in the state of Iowa. Additionally, the vague and overbroad wording of the legislation leaves the definition of terms like arms and restrictions up to broad interpretations, which may prove to undermine the few current gun regulation policies in Iowa. But, The gun safety advocate said there are still measures state legislators can pass that would help stop gun violence in Iowa. In their 2023 legislative agenda, March for Our Lives recommended that Iowa legislators pass a mandatory three-day waiting period, universal background checks, and mandatory reporting of lost or stolen firearms. Esha Bolar, an 18-year-old senior at Johnston High School and co-state director for the advocacy group, said March for Our Lives had to take a step back from some of their more ambitious policy goals like police demilitarization, given the new amendment, and conservative majorities in both chambers of the Iowa legislature. Bolar said, Now, I don't think that's possible. Amongst a lot of other kinds of gun violence prevention policy that we've researched in the past, but we know that with these three priorities, we can see some kind of change happening. Bolar said she thinks all three of the recommended policies will be able to hold up to strict scrutiny challenges. Other states have implemented a three-day waiting period and universal background checks for acquiring firearms, which have survived court challenges, finding they did not violate Second Amendment rights from the U.S. Constitution. However, the new state constitutional amendment offers protections beyond the Second Amendment, which does not hold laws to the strict scrutiny test. March for Our Lives speakers also said that mandatory reporting of lost or stolen firearms would allow with Iowa Code and pointed to a piece of legislation that State Representative Art Steed of Cedar Rapids introduced in 2021 that did not progress past committee. Bolar said the organization is already working with Democratic state legislators like State Representative Akol Abdul-Samad of Des Moines and State Senator Sarah Trone Garriott of Windsor Heights to reach their policy goals in the coming session. Some Republicans have been open to discussions about gun violence prevention, Bolar said, adding she hopes to work with more GOP legislators in the future. March for Our Lives advocates also say they hope to see more action from Governor Kim Reynolds on gun violence in the coming years. Reynolds announced the School Safety Bureau's creation in June with $100 million in federal funds to address school shootings and other violence. Bolar said the group wants to see how these funds have been invested and also talk with the governor about further school safety measures. Bolar said Kim Reynolds knows that it's an issue. It's happening in her own high schools in her own state. I think now we just need to try and figure out where we can take that. Also on the Iowa Today page from Gage Miskaman of the Gazette, Iowa adds new COVID cases. On Wednesday, The Gazette, Iowa, reported 2,000 
256 new COVID-19 cases in the past week. That's a 5% increase from the cases reported the previous week. The actual total likely is much higher, given the availability of at-home test kits, the results of which are not reported to the state. In Lynn County, 181 COVID cases were reported in the past week, which is down from the 192 reported the previous week. The county has recorded 63,548 cases since March of 2020, according to the Iowa Department of Public Health. Johnson County added 133 cases last week, up 13 from the previous week. The county has recorded 44,106 cases since the start of the pandemic. To date, 888,667 people have tested positive for COVID-19 in Iowa. The state confirmed 40 deaths from COVID-19 in the past week, including three in Lynn County and one in Johnson County. The state reported 36 deaths the previous week. Since March of 2020, 10,463 Iowans have died from COVID-19. In Lynn County, that total is 651 people. In Johnson County, that total is 171. Hospitalizations totaled 248, which is up 2% from what was reported the previous week. The number of COVID-19 patients in intensive care units decreased, though, from 20 to 17, according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. From the Top Stories page is a story written by Grace King of the Gazette. Solon residents signal support for school bond referendum. Dateline, Solon. Residents in the Solon Community School District indicated strong support for a $25.5 million bond referendum this spring, which would fund improvements to an elementary school, expansion of its intermediate school, and build a multi-purpose indoor activity center. A survey conducted by the district found that 81% of parents and 73% of general citizens would support a general obligation bond at the polls. A bond requires 60% majority vote to pass. The bond referendum could be taken to voters as early as March 7th and would not increase property taxes. Superintendent Davis Idol said that in an interview with the Gazette. The district's current tax rate of 1628 per $1,000 of taxable valuation would be unchanged if voters approve the bond. Facilities Master Plan Committee member Denny Gruber, who is a retired teacher from the Solon Schools, coach and longtime community member, said the district is expecting an additional 25 to 50 students a year. Gruber said, we need more classroom space. The district currently has about five sections of classrooms per grade and could quickly grow it to seven. Jared Kilberg, a real estate agent with four kids in the district, said there are 400 to 500 housing units planned over the next 10 years in the school district. Kilberg said, my wife and I are very involved parents. We moved here to have that small community feel. The 1,091 people who responded to the survey included school district employees, parents of school-aged children, agricultural landowners, and commercial property owners. A citizen group is collecting signatures to petition the school board to put a general obligation bond on the ballot in March to address a plan to begin the next phase of projects in the school district's master facility plan per Iowa Code. 
The signatures will be presented to the school board later this month. At least 25% of the number of voters who voted in the last election of school officials must sign the petition for the school board to set the time, date, and place of the election. The district's first priority, if the bond is passed, is to update Lakeview Elementary School, which was built in 1966 and is in need of upgrades to major building systems, including electrical, plumbing, heating, and ventilation. Other projects at Lakeview Elementary would include updating the gym floor and replacing the bleachers, adding energy-efficient lighting, repainting classrooms, renovating the library for group collaboration, and replacing worn playground equipment. This project could cost up to $7 million. The bond would pave the way to expand Solon Intermediate School, a project that estimated to cost between 9 and $10 million. It includes several general education classrooms, one special education classroom, one project-based learning room, and a gym. The Intermediate School was built in 2017 and designed for an additional wing to be added when necessary. The bond also would include renovating a former truck stop purchased by the district on the north edge of town into a transportation center with covered space for bus parking for $650,000. This would help extend the life of district-owned buses and reduce the amount of time drivers spend prepping buses in the winter months. Another major proposal under the bond is building a multi-purpose indoor activity facility with turf flooring that could be used for baseball, softball, soccer, golf, marching band, archery, and other activities. The middle school property would be a potential site for the $4 million project. Finally, the bond would provide funds to replace the 12-year-old turf field at Spartan Stadium for $800,000. The district has saved money from not having to water or mow the field for the last 12 years, according to school officials. Moving on to today's Insight page, we have a guest editorial from Iowa Secretary of State Paul Pate, who says, There is a form of slavery taking place in Iowa right now. It's called human trafficking, and it occurs when men, women, or children are forced to perform labor services or sexual acts. This horrific crime affects thousands of people across the U.S., and it can happen to anyone. The state of Iowa is taking steps to raise awareness about human trafficking and put an end to this danger, but we need your help. January is Human Trafficking Awareness Month. This is an opportune time for Iowans to learn how to recognize the signs of human trafficking, stand with survivors, and inform them of available resources. Human trafficking is a crime that can occur behind closed doors, in plain sight, at a workplace, and in any area of our country. One year ago, I announced the launch of a new initiative to bring Iowa's business community together to fight back. It's called Iowa Businesses Against Trafficking, and our goal is to build a statewide army in Iowa. Since the IBAT launch, more than 600 businesses and organizations have taken up the cause. The genesis of IBAT came in April 2021 while I was attending a lunch and learn in my hometown of Cedar Rapids. Participants at the event detailed some of the horrors that victims endured. There was also discussion about a human trafficking attempt that was thwarted by an alert employee at the Eastern Iowa Airport in Cedar Rapids. The employee had undergone a human trafficking awareness training and recognized the signs. I quickly realized there was 
us an opportunity to bring this kind of awareness statewide to address this form of modern-day slavery. If Iowa's business community comes together, we can accomplish the goal of ending human trafficking in our state, whether it's a large corporation or a mom-and-pop store on Main Street with one employee. Every business can join, and every business can make a difference. Something as simple as handing out a brochure or making a social media post can make a difference. It can create a ripple effect across the state. My office, the Iowa Legislature, the Iowa Department of Public Safety's Office to Combat Human Trafficking, and the Iowa Department of Transportation's Motor Vehicle Enforcement are all working toward the same goal, to make Iowa a trafficking-free state. But we need your help. There are several ways Iowans can make a difference. If you're a business owner or manager, join IBAT. If you want to learn more on how to recognize the signs of trafficking, you can view free online training at stopHTIowa.org. If you want to show your support for survivors and raise awareness, January 11th is Human Trafficking Awareness Day. Help us raise awareness and join thousands of people across the U.S. by wearing blue on January 11th and posting your picture on social media. We can all make a difference. Every added voice helps. Learn something. Do something. Together, let's put an end to human trafficking. And that's a Gazette guest editorial from Paul Pate, Iowa's Secretary of State. We have one community letter today. It's from Kurt Zingula of Central City, who says, Because my rural backyard was examined as a potential route for a CO2 pipeline, I have considerable appreciation for the setback distances proposed by the Lynn County Board of Supervisors. Ruptures and leaks in major oil and gas pipelines can be described as a common occurrence. That's an important consideration when pipelines carry CO2, which, in concentration, is lethal to humans. The Global Carbon Capture and Storage Institute claims that CO2 pipelines are needed by 70 to 100 industries per year for the next 30 years to attain the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement. The current CO2 pipeline proposals and their dangers should be viewed as, quote, the tip of the iceberg. The insanity of politics drives the advance of CO2 pipelines. The Paris Climate Agreement allows India and China to build over 200 new long-term coal-fired power plants, while the U.S. works to offset that circumstance with projects like CO2 pipelines. On that note, Congress is now offering billions in tax credits to pipeline investors who claim to be advancing ethanol more than themselves, while at the same time offering billions to accommodate electric vehicles that won't use ethanol. Having government officials willing to put the protection of their constituents ahead of CO2 pipeline agendas is obviously beneficial. Thanks again to the Lynn County Board of Supervisors. And that's today's community letter from Kurt Zingula of Central City. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Thursday, January 5th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. And today, as usual, we start with the shorter other notices. From Cedar Rapids, Stephen P. Heverlow age 69, died Monday, January 2nd. Assisting the family will be the Papish Cuba Funeral Service. From Decorah, Norma 
Ike, aged 96, died Wednesday, January 4th. Helms Funeral Home will be in charge of those arrangements. Also from Decorah, Joanne Marie Lillehammer Slowly, aged 90, died Sunday, January 1st. The Helms Funeral Home will assist the family. From Elgin, Dale Allen Moore, age 75, died Monday, January 2nd. In charge of those arrangements will be the Leonard Ground Funeral Home and Cremation Service. In Maquoketa, Elizabeth Bell, age 63, died Monday, January 2nd. Assisting the family will be the Carson Celebration of Life Center. From Mount Vernon, Marcia A. Himes, age 76, died Thursday, December 29th. Assisting the family will be the Stuart Baxter Funeral Home and Memorial Service. From Oxford, Kathy M. Pitlick, age 62, died Tuesday, January 3rd. The Lensing Funeral and Cremation Service will assist the family. From Westgate, Julie A. Jellybean Evans, age 41, died Monday, January 2nd. The Jameson Schmitz Funeral Home of Old Wine will assist the family. And Anna May Redmond, age 68, of Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin, died Tuesday, January 3rd. The Thornburg Ground Funeral Home and Cremation Service will be in charge of those arrangements. Now for the longer, more detailed funeral announcements. Amy Janine Brown, age 61 of Cedar Rapids, passed away Tuesday, January 3rd at Unity Point St. Luke's Hospital in Cedar Rapids after a courageous battle with cancer. A memorial service will be held at 1 o'clock Sunday afternoon, January 8th at the Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids. The family will greet everyone immediately following the service at a reception in the Legacy Center at Murdoch Linwood. John N. Torrey, age 62, of rural Riverside, died Saturday, December 31st at his home under hospice care, surrounded by his family. Services celebrating John's life will be held at a later date to be announced. It is with great sadness that we announce the unexpected passing of our beautiful son, Evan Patrick O'Connor, age 15. He gained his angel wings at Cook's Children's Hospital in Fort Worth, Texas, on Thursday, the 29th of December, 2022, surrounded by his family. Family will greet friends from 4 till 7 p.m. Friday, January 6th, at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Central City, Iowa, with a 3.30 p.m. vigil service at the funeral home. A funeral mass will begin at 11 o'clock Saturday morning, January 7th, at St. Stephen's Catholic Church in Central City, Iowa, and burial will be at Mount Clark Cemetery in Central City. Nicole Riker, age 36, of Manchester, passed away after a short battle with cancer on Monday, January 2nd, at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics in Iowa City. Visitation will be from 2 to 8 p.m. Friday, January 6th, at Leonard Muller Funeral Home in Manchester. Friends may also call from 9.30 to 10.20 a.m. at the church on Saturday. Interment will be at the Fairview Cemetery in Earlville. Reva R. Finley, age 72, of Cedar Rapids, passed away on Monday, January 2nd at Hallmark Care Center in Mount Vernon following a lengthy illness. A private graveside service for immediate family only will be held. Memorials may be made in Reva's name to the Hospice of Mercy or the Hallmark Care Center in Mount Vernon. 
Robert W. Lind, age 86 of Cedar Rapids, formerly of Lisbon, passed away on Tuesday, January 3rd at Pro Medica Care Center. A celebration of life service will be at 11 a.m. Saturday, January 7th at Lisbon United Methodist Church. Private family earnment will be at a later date in Lisbon Cemetery. Brosh Chapel and the Avis Center in Cedar Rapids is in charge of the arrangements. Robin D. Dyer Klein, age 68 of Cedar Rapids, died following a noble fight with cancer on Tuesday, January 3rd at the Dennis and Donna Oldorf Hospice Home of Mercy in Hiawatha. Visitation will be held from 11 to 1 on Saturday, January 7th at the Legacy Center at the Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Cedar Rapids. A memorial service will begin at 1 p.m. Saturday at the funeral home with burial to follow at Linwood Cemetery. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to the family. Moving on now to the sports page, we see a story about high school wrestling written by K.J. Pilcher of the Gazette. Regional assignments are set by the Iowa Girls High School Athletic Union. K.J. says the Iowa Girls High School Athletic Union opened 2023 with a notable announcement. The news gave a clearer picture of the postseason. Regional assignments were released Wednesday, informing coaches and competitors what state qualifying tournament they will wrestle. The Alliant Energy Powerhouse, Luther College in Decorah, the Iowa Events Center in Des Moines, and Sioux City's Tyson Events Center will host two regionals each. The top four regional finishers at each weight will advance to the state tournament February 2nd and 3rd at Extreme Arena in Coralville. Regions 5 and 6 will be held in Cedar Rapids, with 25 teams in each tournament. Belle Plaine, Benton Community, Cedar Rapids Jefferson, Cedar Rapids Kennedy, Highland, Independence, Iowa City High, Linmar, McQuokita, Mid-Prairie, Midland, Mount Vernon, Tipton, Washington, Iowa, and West Liberty are in Region 5. Kennedy coach Craig Malicote said, I like our regional. There are tough teams and tough girls wrestling that day, and we will have to compete hard to qualify. But if you qualify out of our regional, you're going to make some noise at the state meet. It's going to be a great day of wrestling. Region 6 includes Cedar Rapids Prairie, Cedar Rapids Washington, Central City, Clear Creek Amana, East Buchanan, English Valley's Tri-County, Iowa City Liberty, Iowa City Regina, Iowa City West, Iowa Valley, Marion, Solon, Vinton Shellsburg, and West Branch. The Luther Regionals are the smallest of all eight. Each field there includes 20 programs. Region 7 includes Anamosa, Cascade, Decorah, MFL Marmac, North Fayette Valley, Old Wine, Union Community, West Delaware, and Western Dubuque. The Gazette area teams in Region 8 include Albernet, Center Point Urbana, Alcator Central, Postville, South Winnesheek, Starmont, and Walk On. The Lions boys return to action with some major tests. Linmar, ranked fourth in Class 3A by the Iowa Wrestling Coaches and Officials Association, will host number nine Iowa City High tonight. The duel will likely determine the Mississippi Valley Conference Valley Division champions, even though number one to beat Hempstead remains in the mix. The Lions already beat Hempstead 44 to 27. The Little Hawks will wrestle the Muskangs on January 26. Tucked inside the team competition are some marquee matchups. The 182-pound match could feature City High's top-ranked Gabe Arnold and Linmar's number two Tate Nachtaboren. 
The rematch between nationally ranked seniors following Arnold's 8-3 decision over Nuktaborn in the semifinal of the Dan Gable Donnybrook. At 132, the Lions number 3 Braden Park could face the Little Hawks number 4 Kale Kurtz. Both are returning state medalists, with Park posting a 5-2 win in the third place match at the Donnybrook. The Lions will also face 2A's number 4 Mount Vernon in the Linmar duels on Saturday. Also in that nine-team field is number 22 ranked West Dubuque. West Delaware has had a good start, but it hasn't been as smooth or successful as recent seasons. The Hawks have endured injuries in the first half. The break has provided a much needed break from competition, helping most to recover and get ready for a return. West Delaware coach Jeff Foss said, The first half of the year was a matter of putting our team together. We had some guys drop weight for the Battle of Waterloo. We had some shifting going on there. The thing that excited me was that every kid we had in the lineup battled real hard. Now, kids are settling into their weight classes. Foss said West Delaware has nine underclassmen in the lineup for the Battle of Waterloo. They beat good teams and built strength. The Hawks will get state tournament veterans Brent Yankovic and Logan Payton back. Foss said, I think that is important coming down the home stretch. If someone misses a meet, we have someone with experience who can go in there and wrestle hard. We have a girls basketball wrap-up written by Jeff Linder of the Gazette. who says, Giant slaying Linmar lands its biggest conquest yet. Jeff says Linmar has shown a penchant for showing up for big girls basketball games. This was the biggest one yet. Senior Zoe Kennedy drilled eight three-pointers, including one at the end of regulation, to extend the game, and the Class 5A 15th-ranked Lions shocked number 1 Waterloo West in double overtime Tuesday night, 72-68 at Linmar. Lions coach Chad Compton said Wednesday morning, I told them, enjoy this, but I don't want you to feel surprised. The 8-3 and three Lions hit a school record tying 14 shots from long range in 30 attempts. Kennedy, who is a Western Colorado University signee, was 8 for 11 and scored 28 points. Tompkins said she's been shooting real well. Linmar rallied from a 7-point deficit in the fourth quarter, then pounced in the second overtime after Oklahoma signee Sahara Williams fouled out. Tompkins said, Once we got to overtime, I think our depth took over. I felt we were the fresher team. This wasn't the first giant the Lions had slayed this season. They already earned victories over Cedar Rapids Xavier and Iowa City West in December. But in a Mississippi Valley Conference scheduling twist, none of those three results count in the league standings. Linmar prevailed Tuesday despite 24 turnovers. Freshman Drea Kern scored 13 points, Taylor Brunson provided 10 plus eight rebounds and seven assists, and did, quote, a hell of a job defending West's Halle Polk, according to Tompkins. Emily Caranda came off the bench to score nine points. The Lions travel to Cedar Falls Friday, and Tompkins is seeking consistency. He said, we do a good job getting up for the big games, and now the big thing is to play that way all the time. We can enjoy this one until about four o'clock this afternoon. For art lovers, here's a story written by Diana Nolan of the Gazette. Eastern Iowa had a stellar year for art. As we continue to emerge out of pandemic closures, Hannah Brewer, the development director at Theater Cedar Rapids, said it best in a recent Gazette interview by saying, quote, I feel like people were hungry to get back to it, and it's just wonderful to see them want to support the arts again. 
She said, there's just something about that shared experience with a big room full of people. You laugh together, you cry and gasp and applaud. There's nothing else like it. As I tiptoed back into venues, these events rose to my top 10 for 2022. One, the University of Iowa Stanley Museum of Art opens. This was a long time coming. 14 years after the flood of 2008 spilled through the UNI former art museum, deeming it unsuitable for housing UI's collection and touring exhibitions. The gleaming new 63,000-square-foot structure, built farther from the Iowa River now, opened with a public dedication on August 26th. By the 28th, the $50 million state-of-the-art exhibition and education facility had welcomed more than 4,000 visitors into its galleries, and even more for outdoor activities and entertainment. The star of the show was Jackson Pollock's 1943 masterpiece, Mural. I've written about the giant work many times on its globe-trotting journey since the flood, but had never seen it in person. What a thrill to see the vibrant movement and colors freshened up after two years of technical study, restoration, cleaning, and conservation at the Getty Center in Los Angeles beginning in the summer of 2012. The 8-foot by 20-foot oil painting was given to the UI by art collector Peggy Guggenheim in 1951. Number two, Riverside Theater, Mirrorbox Theater, and the James Theater find new homes. Two theater troops and an arts presenter open new facilities this year, each one building on its legacy and adding colorful new threads to the area's arts tapestry. The Riverside Theater gave up its home at 213 North Gilbert Street in Iowa City when the COVID-19 pandemic closed its doors. The professional troupe then launched a $2 million capital campaign to renovate the Crescent Block Building on Iowa City's downtown Ped Mall. The new performance space opened February 4th to 20 with the world premiere of Eden Prairie 1971, capturing three lives forever altered by war. In my review, I noted... Quote, you could hear a pin drop during the February 3rd preview, and Friday's opening night audience gave the production an immediate, well-earned standing ovation. Mirrorbox Theater, which is a small professional troupe, is no longer on the move in search of a stage. It's landed at 1200 Ellis Boulevard Northwest in Cedar Rapids' historic Time Check neighborhood. The 1946 building has been stripped to the studs and renovated to create a flexible theater and actor and patron amenities. I missed the opening production of Drive from November 10th to 20th, but did catch the silly fun of Batman Returns Returns on opening night December 14th. Leslie and Mark Nolte have renovated Riverside Theater's former North Gilbert Street home into the James Theater as a performance venue and event incubator. Riverside Theater and the James Theater now live in spectacular spaces that are a joy to visit and explore. Number three, Orchestra Iowa opens the centennial season in a blaze of glory. With Bruce Orchestra rained out in September, Orchestra Iowa delayed its centennial season opener to October 8th and 9th in Cedar Rapids and Iowa City. In my review, I said, In my 40 years living and working in Cedar Rapids, I've never heard anything more virtuosic than world-renowned guest star Cho Lang Lin's blazing yet tender artistry on Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto in D Major. A Juilliard faculty member, the Grammy-nominated Lin has performed with the world's major orchestras and now with Orchestra Iowa. Number four, Patti LaBelle heats up the holidays at Hancher Auditorium in Iowa City. 
the godmother of soul and queen of my disco days, brought a 70s and 80s hit parade to Hancher December 9th with one Christmas song tucked inside a 90-minute love-in with an audience full of fans on their feet dancing, singing along, and shouting, Go, Patty, go, Patty. I described the concert as a celebration from beginning to end, bathed in red and green lights on stage and dazzling shiny satin attire on the star and a spectacular celebration of artistry wrapped in a loving embrace. Number five, Mamma Mia is the name of the game at Theater in Cedar Rapids. Theater Cedar Rapids posted this message on Facebook following the July 31st final performance of Mamma Mia. It said, quote, We made history. Welcoming over 11,500 patrons, Mamma Mia is officially the best-attended show in TCR's almost 100-year legacy. The musical opened June 24th and ran for more than a month. I got to see it twice and loved it both times, and it's a script I've never really liked. The story always seemed contrived. Number six, Simon Estes shares journey and faith to open the Gazette's Iowa Ideas virtual conference on October 13th. While it may seem self-serving to sing the praises of a Gazette-generated conference, any time you get to hear Iowa-born opera star Simon Estes speak is a pinnacle event. I've interviewed this internationally renowned UI and Juilliard graduate several times over the years, and his compelling story never ceases to amaze me. Now 84 and living and teaching in his home state, Estes is the grandson of a slave who sold for $500 and the son of a coal miner father who could neither read nor write. Yet his towering talent has taken him around the world, singing for royalty, presidents, popes, uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, Nelson Mandela, and the Nobel Prize Committee. The Centerville native has performed in 84 of the world's greatest opera houses on stages around his home state and with 115 symphony orchestras. Number seven, Revival Theater's productions of The Color Purple and Titanic bring thrills and chills to Cedar Rapids stages. This professional troupe, based in Cedar Rapids, never disappoints, but the company really outdid itself this year with two very different, spectacular productions. The color purple nearly peeled the paint off the walls at the intimate CSPS Hall in June, and Titanic rang through its rafters at Theater Cedar Rapids in September. Number eight, Elizabeth Von Presley is chosen as Iowa's contestant on American Song Contest. Von Presley, who made it to the Hollywood Rounds of American Idol in 2013, was selected as Iowa's contestant on the NBC TV show American Song Contest, which premiered March 21st. In announcing her selection, I noted, a colorful pop rocker known for his mess- her messages of body positivity, she said her competition song is definitely a girl power anthem. It is pop, rock, inspirational, motivational, the kind of song you listen to when you want to get pumped up for something. She also wants to shake up the country's perception of Iowa, saying, I'm looking forward to representing Iowa in a way that viewers are not expecting. It's fun to think of a pink-haired pop rocker representing the corn state. She didn't win the competition, but her original song called Wonder has remained popular with fans and audiences long after the show wrapped up. Number nine, Goats clear the way for restoration planting at Bruce Moore, leaving smiles in their wake. 
This was one of my most fun stories ever to report, not just in 2022. What a delight to drive through the historic estate and see the hungry hired hoofs either lying down on the job or munching on the invasive plants thriving in the sun after the 2020 derecho stripped away so many trees from two acres of timber along Linden Drive southeast. The 45 goats, part of the Goats on the Go Dubuque, came from Cox Springs Farm in rural Piasta, just west of Dubuque. The public was welcome to observe the new grounds crew during their two-week stay in September, but fencing kept them at a safe distance. David Jansen, who is Bruce Moore's executive director, said, There are enough of them that you'll see them in the timber, but there will be no great yoga. It's not a petting zoo. They're there to do a job, so we want to stay out of their way and make them work. They're very entertaining, said Brett Seelman of Seelman Landscape Architecture in Cedar Rapids, which was heading up the historic estate's landscape restoration. He said, it's been incredible to watch how much joy they brought. And number 10, two personal favorites, stargazing with my super super fan brother at Truck Fest in Riverside and Judas Priest's 50th anniversary tour stop in Moline, Illinois. After years of interviewing various Star Trek cast members over the phone, I finally got to meet two in person on June 25th. The Klingon Empire's General Martok, who is J.G. Hertzler, and Chancellor Gowron, who's Robert O. O'Reilly. Both were hilarious, growling through fan photo shoots after the parade and later, out of their makeup, serving as judges at the Trek-themed model contest in which my brother Dwayne won a prize. Then on October 29th, Duane and I trucked to Moline to see one of his favorite bands in action. His boss had given him two third-row center tickets to see Judas Priest at the Vibrant Arena. The concert was fantastic musically and visually. Fifty years of screaming hasn't diminished Rob Halford's voice. He still can pull back to lovely with soaring tenor tones. His wardrobe was sparkly splendid, and of course he rode in on a Harley for the finale. Best of all, the language was completely clean through the whole show, to which my brother noted, quote, he's a proper British gentleman. This was a fitting bookend to the first concert I took Duane to at the Five Seasons Center in Cedar Rapids, which was Judas Priest in 1984. And we have plenty to look forward to in 2023 as well. From the Hoopla section of today's Gazette, there's a story written by Elijah Decius of the Gazette. New Sonic locations are planned for Eastern Iowa. Elijah says the owner of more than 100 Sonic drive-in locations is planning to get his foot in the door with Coralville and Iowa City. Nick Bakta, the restaurateur and owner of Soar GSR, hopes to open 10 locations in the Iowa City, Davenport, and Des Moines metro areas, with the first ones tentatively planned to open by the end of the year. The first city to receive a location has not yet been determined, but Iowa City and Coralville are expected to receive three or four of the ten locations. Bakta said, we like what we see along the I-80 corridor. With 20 years restaurant experience, Iowa is a relatively new market for the New Mexico resident who has owned hundreds of various fast food franchise brands like KFC and Taco Bell across Dallas, Texas. Since expanding into burger restaurants, he's opened Sonic franchises in Michigan, Ohio, the Northeast, Maryland, Washington, D.C., Kentucky, and Kansas City. His presence in Iowa started earlier in 2022 when he acquired franchises from owners exiting the market in Davenport, Keokuk, and Des Moines. 
In addition to a development agreement set for 10 new locations across Iowa City, Davenport, and Des Moines, expansion could include Ames and locations in similar towns near I-80 like Oskaloosa and Ottumwa. Davenport currently has two Sonic locations. Cedar Rapids, Coralville, and Waterloo all previously had Sonic locations, which were closed by their franchisee in 2012. Bakta said, Ideally, we are looking to develop one close to the mall, one close to the University of Iowa, and one on the far southeast side. Additionally, we may look at North Liberty as that area grows. Developer hopes to construct new buildings for locations, but is also interested in acquiring buildings from existing restaurants with drive-through capabilities. Development of the plan will rely heavily on the availability of real estate. Bakta said, I think there's definitely opportunity. Burger competitors are prevalent in these territories, but Sonic is not represented well. The Sonic concept has become more attractive to developers since the pandemic's never-ending complications start mounting on restaurants from labor shortages to supply chain issues. As Sonic becomes more rooted in Iowa, he said its model is more poised for success in a challenging business environment. He says, quick-service restaurants prevail quite a bit with COVID. We learned we can give up nice clothes and travel, but the one thing we can't give up on is food. At Sonic, we're geared up for this because we don't have indoor dining rooms. There's another food-related story in the Gazette. After less than two years in business, the Brass Fountain is closing in Solon. The restaurant, decked out in a vintage diner theme, complete with an old-fashioned soda fountain, started serving nostalgia through burgers, fries, and phosphate sodas in early 2021. The restaurant announced its plans to close on December 26th and did close permanently on December 28th. On Solon's Main Street, owner Dick Craig installed a 115-year-old back bar and a Bastion Blessing soda fountain from the 1950s. Returning to the heyday of the soda fountain, he wanted it to bring a modern take to how the institution looked before chrome and neon lights. He told the Gazette, I just thought how cool it would be to bring something back like that. It seems like in life in general, and especially in the restaurant world, someone's always constantly trying to do this brand new thing. Sometimes you lose sight of these great things we already had. Gift cards will be honored at Brick's Cheese Shop and Wine Bar and the Wigan Pen's original pub and North Liberty locations through the end of January. And that does it for the reading today of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Thursday, January 5th. I'm your reader, Kelly Neff. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thank you for listening.
Some would call 88-year-old Sally Jackson a lucky senior. A few years ago, a family member offered to move in and care for Sally so that she wouldn't have to leave the comfort of her own home. But soon after, one of Sally's neighbors, Carol, paid a visit, unannounced. Something wasn't quite right. Sally's demeanor and physical appearance had changed. Luckily, Carol was aware of warning signs that might signal elder abuse. Such as bruises, poor hygiene, isolation, depression, appearing withdrawn or unusually quiet, as if to hide something. When victimized, elderly people often feel ashamed, confused. But an alert neighbor helped Sally. Not all abused seniors are as lucky as Sally Jackson. McGruff the Crime Dog here. The National Crime Prevention Council wants to help you and your loved ones prevent elder abuse. Know what to look for. Know how to report it to local law enforcement agencies. To learn more, go to ncpc.org forward slash seniors. That's ncpc.org slash seniors. A message from the National Crime Prevention Council and the U.S. Department of Justice.